Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers Podcast with your host, Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers Podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics, including health, fitness, and training strategies, to name a few. If you enjoy the show and wish to support, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon or wish to make a one-time donation, please visit the show PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPO pod. Links to both of those can be found in the show notes. Also, consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform and on our video version of the show hosted on YouTube. For updates and notifications, please visit my social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at ZBitter on Twitter, and at Zach.Bitter on Facebook. If you wish to sponsor the show or have any other questions or feedback, please reach out to me at HPOPodcast at gmail.com. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of HPO. I'm really excited to have a return guest and then an addition to that return guest, who we, a person we actually spoke about on that episode. Uh, so I have Dr. Edwards here returning to uh, kind of shed some more light on perhaps some short interval work or speed work and how that translates even into some of the longer endurance events. And, and with him comes uh, a professor from the University of Paris, uh, those of you who've dug into the endurance literature and follow that science are probably familiar with Professor Balat and a lot of the contributions she has had, both on the competitive side of things as a champion of one of the most competitive trail races in the world, Sierra Zanel, and, uh, you know, a 74 minute half marathon PR. And, you know, somewhere along the way, she got interested in the science and all that sort of stuff that came in behind that and started doing a lot of the research and stuff and has, has pioneered uh, some really cool, uh, uh, stuff for, for us endurance athletes and strength athletes and just folks, whether you're, you're an aging athlete and ath- or someone who's in, who's elderly and just wants to, you know, stay in good shape and, and kind of stay, stay on top of your health and fitness. She's got something for everyone. So I'm really excited for professor Bilat to come in here and share some <laughs> of her insight and, uh, um, just, yeah, learn, learn as much as we can. So, we have a couple of things that I think we want to focus off at least at the start. And one is uh, a Ted talk that, uh, that was done that kind of talks about like how humans are supposed to run more or less. And then also just like how to do short intervals and, and what, what exactly is happening when you say you do a very short interval of say 30 seconds versus what some folks may consider a more common like VO two max short interval of a two to four minute session. I think we're going to talk about a little bit of that too, but Welcome back to the show, Dr. Edwards, and thank you so much for your time, uh, Professor Belate, for coming on. Thank you. Yeah, so I think uh, I think one of the uh, a cool spot to start would maybe if you just want to introduce our our audience to a little bit of what you kind of shared with that that TED talk that you did a while back. I you know I demonstrated that it was possible to have an improvement of your VO two max even after 100 years old. So I trained the centenary man who decided to uh, establish the best performance uh, on one hour by c- cycling. And, you know, he, he was uh, an, uh, an amazing uh, man. He, he was able to, uh, to cycle for 23 kilometers per hour uh, when he was uh, 100 years old. And uh, by uh, by doing some short interval training, uh, especially uh, asking him to have a high cadence, uh, high uh, rate of pedal, we uh, we we succeed to improve his VO2 max from uh, 30 milliliters per minute and per kilo body mass to uh, until uh, 36. Uh, three years later, so it means that he was 103 years old. And he, he, he was able to uh, cycling for one hour at uh, 28 kilometers per hour. And we were able to do that thanks to very short interval training. So uh, it means that at every age, uh, even if you start uh, walking, running at 80 years old, if you are in good shape, uh, you can improve. You can improve your VO2 max by doing some very short interval training, uh, especially when you use the 
filling uh, of your of, uh, filling and not you, you don't have to follow uh, speed or any anything like that you just have to be connected with you yourself and uh, I personally I use um, the feeling of uh, easy pace medium pace uh, hard pace very hard pace and uh, when I I plan training for them I just ask them to uh, to stay uh, uh, to stay, for instance, 40 seconds uh, easy pace, then uh, 40 seconds at uh, medium, and, and so on, so on, so on. And I, I don't tell them to, uh, to run at uh, uh, 20 kilometers per hour or, or anything else. That's, uh... Yeah, I think what, like, one thing that's always interesting when we're talking about just like intensity at VO2 max is just there's, I think people sometimes get a little confused because they hear like, that VO2 max isn't something that you can necessarily improve all that much. I think some of the research shows that you maybe move it about 15% in terms of where your VO2 max falls on, on like a metabolic chart. But the important thing I think to, to take away from that is like what your velocity is at your own VO2 max, because for example, like if you're someone with just that, it was blessed with a very high VO2 max, if you're like a Nordic skier or something like that, but your pace at your VO2 max is slower than someone with a lower VO2 max, then in terms of a race result or performance standpoint, it doesn't really matter if say you have a 70 versus a 90 on that metabolic cart, if your pace at 70 is faster than their pace at 90. Am I on track with kind of that and how we should be using or looking at like velocity and that's going to be very relative to you as the individual in your current state? Yes, uh, the most important is, you are right, it's not the two max, is is the speed you can sustain for, for a given time. But, you know, um, many people focus on the two max because it, it looks to be scientific concept. But to do some science of training, it's not necessary to measure the two max. Uh, the most important is to have hypothesis and to have uh, the mean of uh, checking training. And that's why I think that uh, personally, I, 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 I do prefer to ask people to do, for instance, the proper test or, or you know, the, the test you have to run uh, as fast as possible as you want for nine or, or for 12 minutes. Or, or to, to do the rabbit test, uh, just using a feeling uh, easy, medium, uh, hard pace, or for Cooper test, you have to, to run as fast as possible. And then I, I analyze the, the time course of the, of the speed. And you know, it's more, rather, it's more efficient and more uh, correlated with performance than uh, just having a VO2 mask, of course. Because uh, uh, max, as I said, you can uh, you can sustain it for many different time, and uh, in addition to have different value of the max, according to people, you, some people are able to sustain it for a long time by by uh, by, by speed variation, and, and the other not. So you you are right. The most important is to focus on the velocity at a given at a given. Uh, velocity at a given feeling uh, it's more it's more um, uh, the reality is when you run you you run easy and at an easy pace uh, you have a, a, a given pace for for the feeling of, of to be easy and then medium and then hard it's much more efficient to check it and to check at, at which uh, pace you are easy medium and hard uh, than uh, to, to, to check the two max, of course. I, I do agree. I do. Yeah. And, and, and the advantage and advantage it's that you can everyone with a cardio uh, GPS can do that. So yeah. you, you can do the rabbit test and uh, check that uh, you improve. Uh, it means that for the same feeling, uh, you you improve your speed or your your your. Yeah, I can, and I can give a quick uh, rundown of the rabbit test. You know, it's just, rabbit test is, I mean, it's the easiest test and it's actually a pleasure to do, you know, when you, when you think about it, it's, it's so unlike, you know, traditional VO2 max test, which the French call the little corridor of death. Um, 
<laughs> anyway, so, I mean, a, a rabbit test is as simple as running easy for 10 minutes, uh, resting a minute, doing a, a short sprint, resting a minute, running medium at five minutes, resting a minute, running hard at three minutes, resting a minute, sprinting. Then after that, you sprint 30 seconds, rest a minute, and then you run 10 minutes after that at an easy pace. So, I mean, all the rabbit test requires is eight minutes of like, like kind of a focused effort. And you can do, you can repeat the rabbit test multiple times. I mean, three, four or five times a month if you want. And you, and, and once you do it, I'm telling you, you look forward to doing it. And it's all, it's all outlined in our book, but anyway, that's, and you get your VO2 max and it's within 5% of a, of a traditional VO2 max done in a physiologic lab. So. So it, if you, if you want to try it, Zach, I can offer uh, some uh, uh, trials for your, for your listeners. If you want, uh, we can uh, offer you uh, some trials, uh, free trials for one month. Who you yeah. Want to it. yeah, I think that'd be fun. We could maybe do a competition or something and see, see how many people we can get to give it a go and, and then test again down the road and see where they see improvements and, and ask what they did to get those improvements. But uh, I do want to follow up on that because uh, um, I, I, I do think that is a very achievable ask in terms of a workout as far as prescribing workouts to my coaching clients. I wouldn't feel that daunted giving that to one, that one out and thinking that they're going to come back just, uh, you know, loathing my, my coaching or anything like that. But, uh, how does that compare from, let's say like an accuracy standpoint from your research on say like a Cooper test, which would essentially just be like a time trial of 12 minutes. And then we're assuming at that point that, uh, a, a maximum effort evenly paced at 12 minutes is going to be a fairly good indication of your, uh, your velocity at VO2 max. Uh, wh where would that fall within the context of the rabbit test? Yeah, the rabbit, you have your VO2 max in the rabbit test uh, during the three minutes of our pace. So it's much more easy to do that uh, in comparison with the Cooper test, which is very long. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know how to manage it, <laughs> it can be a, a catastrophe. <laughs> so um, okay, you can have a crash. Yeah. So rabbit test, as said uh, Jonathan, it's very easy and pleasant mm -hmm. because we also check uh, by this way, given that you have some sprint phase, some 30 seconds, you, are, you can have uh, in, this, in one test, you can have your uh, strength, your cardiac uh, capacity, your, your um, to, uh, lactate tolerance, look, uh, your uh, maximal accumulated oxygen deficit. And also the most important also is the perception, the, your driving, how you drive your, 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 your feeling. Uh, for instance, some people who are not well-trained can't uh, make, make the difference between medium pace and hard pace. Because the medium pace is much too deep, it, it's, it's very difficult because when you have them to do some medium pace, it, it does correspond to the, the speed on marathon. But when you, do, you ask them to do that, uh, often they, they, they do uh, something very hard. They are above their ventilatory threshold, they are above their lactate uh, threshold uh, because they don't know what is medium. And you know the medium pace is very important for competition because it's the, the, this uh, this pace we use for for running a marathon, and uh, that's why uh, that's why uh, we we have uh, we, we give uh, a, a quotation of the ability to distinguish the, the speed according to your feeling. So it's it's very important, and in, in my opinion, in future we we have to check that we have well. Uh, run on marathon. You can have a, a good chronometer, but this day you didn't have uh, optimize. Okay, your chronometer is is not too bad, but you could have uh, do better. And uh, now we are on the uh, on the way to uh, to give you an index of quality of performance, not only the chronometer, not only the time, 
But how you how you did that? How you manage your your race? Because some people are disappointed by their their, their time of their their, their, their their performance. But uh, this day, they, they did the best as they, 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 they could. So that's, it's important to give them a feedback of how they did their race. And uh, that's why rabbit is interesting because uh, uh, you can uh, give a quotation for the ability to, to manage pace according feeling. It's a good preparation for doing competition. Yeah, I think it's it's just kind of interesting how you kind of like progress into that so you don't have to like really spend quite as much overall volume at that that high intensity or that like VO2 max velocity. So so yeah, it makes sense when you think about it like the the 12 minute Cooper test setup is kind of well fitting into the the French uh description of the small corridor of death I suppose versus having to spend a smaller fraction of that at that intensity and having some progression rates in there on the way to it. So I think, uh, I mean, I'm sold. I want to try it out and see where it is and, and kind of measure at the, at the end phase or throughout, I guess, and see kind of where the, where the progress is made. Um, but I, I want to also move in, unless you have anything else you want to share about that to just like, now we have that test completed and we have like this beginning, we have the information to get started, so to speak. So then the next step is what do we need to do out in our training in order to actually improve that test score for the next time we do it. And then we get into kind of the way we structure kind of our short interval sessions. And a lot of folks who, who follow endurance training, when they think of like VO2 max style intervals, you know, you can get anything from historically, I think just very short, like a minute or less and all the way up to about four minutes where they kind of see that window of time as an appropriate interval length, where I think most of the research that I've seen shows like once you go past four minutes, you're just spending too much time at VO2 max in order to replicate enough to get the overall volume high enough. And some of the research I've seen has indicated that two to four minutes is kind of that is a bit of a sweet spot in terms of overall volume. But uh, you kind of go to the opposite end of the spectrum and mention that this, this 30 second interval may actually produce as good or better results because uh, it's not, there's not as much uh, lactate accumulation. Am I understanding yeah. that properly? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. Um, now, I don't recommend to, to do some interval training above uh, two minutes. It's much too long because you, your gly glycogen is depleted. And if you try to do a, a training session, uh, for instance, on Wednesday, and then on, a, on a, a, for instance, Monday and Wednesday, you don't have the time for covering. Uh, if you do some very short interval training, even 15 seconds, 15 seconds, 15 seconds, 15 seconds for 15 minutes, it's very easy, very uh, easy uh, to do that. And you can have a good re recovery uh, just uh, for, uh, for 48 hours. It's very quick. Uh, if, you, if you do some interval longer than two minutes, it's even longer than one minute, it's much too long because you accumulate like that and you, your glycogen is depleted and so on. So uh, I recommend to do very short interval training. And if you want to do some something longer you can have uh, interval training in pyramid uh, you you start from easy pace medium for instance two minutes easy pace two minute medium two minutes hard and you you decrease uh, much much difficult is is not to 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 to, to break uh, immediately is to decrease progressively because when you decrease your view to max stay your view to stay at view to max so you can have, uh, if you want to do some interval training longer, you you, you start from easy, two minutes, easy, uh, medium, two minutes, hard, two minutes, and when you, and then you decrease. Uh, yeah. You do that, and for, for instance, for 20 minutes. So you are, you are almost uh, uh, all the time at the two max. You stimulate your VO2 max, your maximal stroke volume, your um, your heart, maximal heart rate, your your um, your oxygen saturation, and so on. Your VO2 max, and uh, but uh, from uh, the muscle point of view, 
you you work in a different uh, stretch uh, uh, regimen and you 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 don't uh, uh, deplete your, your glycogen and you don't accumulate uh, like that. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by a company named Elemental Labs. Elemental Labs is a company that has created an electrolyte powder that you can mix into your drink. The reason Elemental Labs began developing the product Element is because Rob Wolf noticed that his performance seemed to suffer when he was taking part in one of his favorite activities, jujitsu. And after a little problem solving, he realized that it was an electrolyte situation, specifically sodium. So he wanted to develop a product that gave him all the benefits of the electrolytes without all the additional sugars and fillers that you would find in traditional sports drinks. Element is packed with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, and comes in four flavors of orange salt, citrus salt, raspberry salt, and raw unflavored. So if you would like to up your electrolyte game, head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO and place an order. All right, now back to the show. That's really, I want to follow up on that because that's really interesting uh description for a couple of reasons one i think like i mean personally i think like doing the really short like fast intervals are going to be a little more mentally achievable for me into as an individual um i think they're a little more welcoming to say someone who's not in an endurance sport but rather more of a strength and explosive sport and then thirdly uh, and, and my listeners will will likely take note of this as well is that depletion of muscle glycogen. Uh, you know, a good portion of the folks who listen to my podcast are kind of interested in a low carbohydrate diet. So, you know, for me, as someone who also follows a low carbohydrate diet for ultra, ultra marathon type performances, when I hear like a reduction in glycogen depletion for a similar or better return, that, that rings a bell for me because, uh, it would essentially mean I would have less of a need to bring back more carbohydrates around some of those key high intensity sessions. So uh, I think, uh, you know, it's something that I think would be great, a fun, fun way to experiment with and see just uh, if I'm able to read, I, I periodize my carbohydrates, but um, they are at their highest usually when I'm doing my VO2 max interval sessions or my lactate threshold type sessions kind of in, for me, they're earlier in my plan since since I, I tend to run races that are a hundred miles or further, um, or around a hundred miles, I should say. But, uh, yeah, so that's really interesting stuff to hear. Is there, uh, how did you come, come to recognize that there was a, a variance in, in glycogen depletion between say a, a two minute interval session versus a 30 second or even 15 second interval session? Uh, it's very easy because, uh, at the end of a training session, you can't, when you, 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 you climb the stairs, you know, yeah. your feet, your... <laughs> it's very difficult, your leg is, uh... so uh, it's the stairs, uh, uh, you, at the end, you, you, you climb stairs and you, you know that you don't have glycogen anymore. You're not gasping for breath. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Like it, uh, I want to switch over to, to Dr. Edwards for a second. Cause I know you work with athletes and stuff with with a lot of this philosophy. So when you're working with an athlete and you're working with them, maybe in tandem with what their nutrition protocol is, do you see a scenario where they're able to reduce their carbohydrate intake and still kind of hit those higher end workouts and not feel like they're, you know, losing that last gear, which I think is something that is oftentimes uh, pinned to the low carb community when it comes to endurance sport. Yeah, the, uh, that's a great question. You know, the, uh, it's certainly, yeah, you can, you increase a couple of things. I'll, I'll back up, you know, doing the 30 thirties and the shorter intervals, less than two minutes. Uh, remember that allows you to spend more time at VO2 max without depleting your glycogen or as as, as say as bad as you would, if you went past two minutes. So that's a very important distinction, um, you know, from very 
variable pace training and sprints and train, you know, constant pace training of glycogen levels while at VO2 max. So I think that to be very clear, that's an important concept to kind of wrap your head around, or, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're new to this anyway, um, to your question, yeah, you absolutely can increase on a lower carbohydrate state, your VO2 max, your ability to sustain VO2 max, um, you know, cause all that's done with, you know, other fuels like lactate becomes your premium fuel. Um, as you, as you build the machinery, the enzymatic cellular machinery, you know, for your heart to be able to use lactate better, you know, and go through the steps, you know, to make, uh, equivalent ATP. Um, and then finally, you know, in my experience, you know, I work with my main interest, you know, as the professional cyclist and what I see, um, you know, what I've seen with guys like for Roman Bardet or Chris Froome, those guys just have, they come with big engines. So, you know, when they, so when they try something like a lower carbohydrate, say a fasting training, you know, those guys with big engines handle lower carbohydrate training, so to speak, so much better than say somebody without such a, you know, we'll call a big engine, um, in my experience anyway. So, you know, everybody has their ability to increase their capacity to work out and achieve say VO two max, you know, we'll call it time at VO two max better than others. And it just, it, a lot of it depends on your genetic engine of what you're, you're born with and everybody can improve it to some point. And, you know, that's, that's my, that's my experience in it all. Thanks for sharing that. And one other kind of follow-up question with that too, just to understand exactly kind of what's going on with these shorter intervals is I'm kind of trying to draw a picture in my head of maybe what that would look like on a pacing chart. You know, I would think of maybe a slightly ascending like wave pattern over the course of those 30 second by 30 second, where, you know, you have that kind of up and down of the easy 30 second, the fast 30 second, easy 30 second. And like over the course of, you may have like a slight incline uh, within that. Is that, is it because of the, I mean, it's a one-to-one rest work ratio or work rest ratio, similar to most VO2 max workouts, whether it be one minute, two minute, three minute, four minute, uh, or in this case, 30 seconds. But is it that since the one-to-one is so condensed to the short nature of the interval, is that what allows you to stay at or spend, spend more time at VO2 max versus say, if I did three minutes on three minutes off the three minutes off would essentially take me so far back down that I need to spend maybe the next 90 seconds getting back up to VO2 max. Oh, that's uh, Dr. Bellad. I'm going to have you answer mm-hmm. that because uh, that's your, that's all her research right there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, when we try to uh, three minutes per minute, you know, when uh, during the recovery phase, your view to uh, is decreasing uh, until uh, uh, 50% of the two max, you have the time to, to decrease. So you have to, to accelerate and uh, to increase again. And you maybe you, you, you spend very short time at the two max indeed. But you have many. Uh, you have a high lactate accumulation for a very few time spent at the max. It's uh, it's not in- interesting, and uh, mentally it's very hard to uh, to do that because it's it, there is a, a high break. The recovery is very long, and you you don't have uh, uh, you you have the time to think about the fact that you have to 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 <laughs> to run fast again. And it's, no, no, it's not. Uh, easy uh, mentally, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. I can I can attest to that. When I've done the thirty by thirties in the past, I do notice. You, yeah, you don't have a whole lot of time to really worry about the next thirty seconds because they kind of pop up pretty quick once you get rolling. And it's always mind boggling to me when I do that workout. How like when I get into it, like before I start it, you always have the kind of the nerves and the anxiety of doing a workout. But once you kind of get into it and you get into the flow of it. It, it feels like it goes by so fast. Like I feel like those workouts just pass by from a, from a mental standpoint a lot faster. And perhaps that is, like you said, with that 30 second recovery, you just, 
you, by the time you get around to worrying about the next one, you've already started it. And since the intervals themselves are not that long, it's pretty easy to wrap your head around 30 seconds. Like yeah. you're, if, if you're suffering at 20 seconds, you only got 10 seconds to go. So <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Mentally, yeah. There, there's two versions of 3030s, you know, that you should probably discuss as well. You know, you got kind of like the easy version where, you know, you go at a hard pace for 30 seconds and then you just drop back down to an easy pace for 30 seconds. And that's, we call that uh, 30 version one 3030s, if you will, in the book, you know, in the science of the marathon. Um, and that that's definitely the one people should start with if they're not used to doing 3030s for the more elite athletes, you know, and say like for yourself, you know, a lot of her, a lot of Dr. Bellat's research on it shows, you know, you go up to a hard pace and you come back down to a medium pace for 30 seconds, hard pace, 30 seconds, medium pace, 30 seconds. And the amount of minutes you can do that, you know, an elite athlete, uh, Dr. Bellat, what's how many minutes did you say? Like 14, 18 minutes is a typical like elite Kenyan marital or, or sorry, any elite marathoner can hold it for about, you know, 14 to 18 minutes kind of thing. And that's a benchmark for yes. that version of 3030s. So for the elite community, and uh, I'll give you an aside note, there's an Olympic runner named Brenda Martinez that I work with. Uh, she's, uh, you know, she's won uh, several medals. She's been on Olympic team. She's a 1500 meter, so a middle distance runner. And her and her coach, um, Carlos Handler, have been using the 3030s for the last year, actually. Um, and and they and they, what her comments are is that it's just so nice not having to look at the Garmin or the watch and just force herself to like to to completely, you know, just trash her you know you know how you have to just kind of you know wrench out your body to get out those last things and she says doing these 3030s have been such a a mind relief you know from from the suffering that takes place on the track you know so anyway from an so an olympic example is brenda martinez using these high level elite 3030s you know and she does other things but i think it's a nice example for everybody out there you know to see that there's, you know, there's some, a lot of high-end athletes utilizing this. Yeah. I find it really interesting because I, I wouldn't say that I find it rare to see it. I find what a lot of times I see in a lot of the programming nowadays is there'll be like an introduction phase to like bringing back those short intervals or those VO2 max target intervals, but it'll be more of like a progression. So like they, maybe they start out with 30 thirties, but then they move into like one by one on minutes or two by two, and then they work up. And uh, it sounds like you're saying it should be more of a, like the, the, at the very least, the focal point of the VO2 max section, regardless of whether you include some, some alterations along the way. Yeah. Go ahead, Veronica. Yeah. If you want to improve your performance, you don't have to increase the time of your uh, duration of your interval training. I do prefer to ask the people to run faster, 30-30, and to, uh, as said, uh, Jonathan, to ask them not to slow down too much, rather than to ask them uh, to, to do that for one minute, one minute, two minute, minute. No, it's not. It's a completely different work, and it's not efficient for improving your VO2 max, and uh, you, don't, you, you can't recover, as I said, uh, with uh, this longer interval training. It's not the same uh, kind of work, indeed. Mm -hmm. So then the, the training load increase over the course of a plan would be to either be running those 30 seconds faster than you did originally or adding to the number of 30 by 30s that you have in any one session? Both. Both. You're right. Sure. Both. Interesting. Both. Yeah, I just I wanted to make sure to say that just because I think a lot of times when if people are very familiar with training methodology, they're probably thinking like, well, where I start isn't where I end. So where am I gauging improvement? But I mean, you know, I think when I think of like training stress or training load, I think of either adding additional volume at intensity or adding additional or, or more intensity at the same volume. So like, I think, yeah, you could spearhead either of those or maybe simultaneously, depending on how the athlete's adapting, but it it makes sense. Um, I want to follow up with one other question related to these. And, uh, one is just like just the skeletal muscle system. So like, I think from like, 
training the cardiovascular system uh, is one thing, but then also like having your, your legs essentially ready for the activity at which you're going to participate. How important is that then with, uh, with this type of a, a training design? I know when I spoke with Dr. Edwards previously, he was a pretty big proponent of varied pacing, which I think would fit in line with this type of a strategy because you're essentially varying your pacing off as often as you really could for the most part. But is there any, is there any uh, reason that like structuring different types of short intervals for longer duration to help with just your, your skeletal muscle system or is those, are those things on par or does the short ones actually do a better job of that? No, it's not necessary. If you want to increase your, muscle system, you just have to accelerate as fast as possible or to use the gravity uh, to, to climb slope, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because when you, when you run a long, longer time, uh, even on, on, on interval training for two minutes, three minutes, you, you run, you run a very uh, slower. So it's not, uh, it's not a good way for improving your strength because your, again, your strength depends at the impulsion and on the time you spend on the ground, which has to be the shorter as possible, uh, around uh, 0 0.0 seconds. It must be very, very, very short. Uh, in that way, your energy cost of running is minimum because if you uh, spend a long time, you, you don't have strength. have uh, the ability to have a, a, a very fast impulsion you are obliged to, to stay a long time on, your, on, uh, on the ground and your energy cost of running is multiplied by 1.5. We measure it on the marathon. Because when you arrive at, at 30, 30th kilometer, uh, at the end of the race, you, you spend more time on the ground, more, more, more time, and uh, you have, uh, you, uh, your, your energy cost, you, you, don't, you can't uh, have a bouncing you can't uh, recover your elastic energy and your energy cost of running is increasing uh, by 1.5. So it's, uh, it's, 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 that's why for having a strength, specific strength for running, uh, you must absolutely run fast. And uh, when I compare the elite marathoners, the, the marathoner who run uh, below two hours and 10 minutes and the one who run between 2.11 till 2.15, the main difference was not VO2 max. It was not a fractionalization of VO2 max at the lactate threshold. It was only the speed, uh, the maximal speed on 1,000 meters. That makes the difference. If you are able uh, to run very fast one kilometer, uh, it's a, a discriminant uh, way to be a very high level marathon compared because they all have a good VO2 max. They all have a good uh, lactate threshold, uh, velocity at lactate threshold. The difference is the strength and is the speed and short distance. Yeah, I actually remember reading that in the book that, that you you and Dr. Edwards had sent me where you're looking at actually the pacing of some of the most successful marathon times. And there, the, the interesting thing there is if you look at like the average pace line across their race, they were very rarely running at that pace. They were like oftentimes running a bit faster or a bit slower, almost to like, uh, if you want a visual for it, kind of like a concave curve where they started out fast they settled in right under goal pace and then they raised above goal pace at the end. So they kind of put themselves in a position to leverage their fresh legs and mind early on, and then leverage that desire to finish in the end by running their fastest miles kind of on those polar ends of the race. Um, is that kind of, am I, am I summarizing that accurately? Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, you know, exactly what the, you know, we saw in like, you know, the, like Gerbalasi and all these guys who had successful marathons. So like when you look at the, you know, the ones where they really hit their, like a 2002 or, you know, even, you know, Kipchoge at his, you know, in his Berlin marathon performance, they all had these little micro accelerations, you know, variable pace, I should say, you know, below their average marathon pace, you know, and then they, then they were able to ramp it up, 
you know, at the end, but, you know, it all goes into the energetics of energy conservation, you know, with lactate utilization, glycogen, um, you know, so that, so even those guys, they all do a variable pace, whether they know it or not, you know? So, but I was going to, um, on a, it would be fascinating to, to do a study on say the types of races you do, Zach, you know, in the hundred miles and, and dissect the hundred mile distances you guys race and, and see where all the, the most, you know, where the most times you put in certain speeds and not certain speeds. And I would hypothesize, you know, you guys, there, there might be a similarity there with the marathon and that the only separators between, you know, you winning and, and another person winning could be just that amount could, could come down to like an hour, Mm-hmm. you know, out of 12 hours, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of thing. I, I would suspect to see the same, um, the, the same, and maybe Dr. Balat has some insight on this. I don't know. Yes. Well, the most important, I say, Jonathan is to, to start fast. I mean, your marathon, you have to start fast as possible. And then uh, at, the, uh, at the first kilometer, you decrease your speed slowly and you you spend more time below your average pace and at the end you increase again uh, in the last 10 kilometers uh, your speed so you you do a kind of smiley mm-hmm. race and inside this big smiley race you have a micro smiley race so that's a good, a good way but for being able to do that again you have you must have a big reserve of power of speed, you have. We must have a, a high speed reserve. It may it may say that you don't have to train at the, at your marathon pace every time. You 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 must be able, for instance, if you want to to run two hour and forty eight minutes, let's say fifteen kilometer per hour. Uh, you 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 must have a, a train between ten kilometer per hour till uh, 26, 27 uh, in sprint phase. If you are not able to have this high range, you, you can't ra- race, do your race, but in that way, you, you, you are right to do like that. And then to decrease your speed at the, at the 26 kilometer. So if you train at very different speed, uh, you, you will be able to, to bear, to, to have a benefit of this speed variation during the marathon. All right, folks, I'm excited to announce that Eggweights has partnered with me as an athlete and HPO podcast, and I want to share with you a few things that I use their products for. Uh, First, I love their run pods, which are these ergonomic weights that are two pounds that fit right in the palm of your hand. I love these to help with my arm drive and form consistency that they work with the University of Southern California's Clinical Science Research Lab to show the benefits for those. On the strength side of things, I'll actually sometimes go all the way up to their five-pound handhelds here for box jumps and lunges. And finally, I really like their total massage toolkit that you can customize. I really like it to dig out some of those sore spots in my calves and hamstrings. All their stuff come in these great little nice egg weights tote bags. So check them out at eggweights.com. That's E-G-G-W-E-I-G-H-T-S dot com and enter promo code ZAC15 for 15% off your order. That's Z-A-C-H-1-5 for 15% off. Alrighty, folks, now back to the show. That's really interesting. I'm glad you added the part about those micro kind of smiley faces or like concave uh, curves in the, in the middle. So it's not always thought of as just one big 26 mile effort because there is a lot of nuance in there. And, and to, to reflect on your question, Dr. Edwards, too, I think like I, my guess is if you looked at a hundred miles, first of all, you're going to get a lot of goofiness depending on what the race is. Cause if you get these trail events where you, there's just that big wrench thrown in the middle of it, where you, you know, you might be running up a thousand foot, one mile Hill versus going down one. Whereas right. some of the events that I've done may be more applicable for this type of a research project, since a lot sure. of them are on a 400 meter track where you're going to have that controlled environment. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing, and I can send you the splits from my world record for hundred miles. You can take a look at it because they have them broken down to 443 meters. And 
you'll be able to see any pace, uh, probably a small enough uh, pace adjustment within that. And if I just reflecting on it, I mean, I, I ran that race the first half in five hours and 40 minutes and the second half in five hours and 38 minutes. And I know my fastest splits were at the end, like in the last 10 miles. And uh, I'm pretty sure I was running faster the first 10 to 20 miles than I was in the middle. So my guess, if I, I plotted all those lap splits, it would be a concave curve to some degree. You know, it might be multiple concave curves, curves in the sense of since it's stretched out to a hundred miles that, you know, I might get like one concave and then a slight uprise and another concave and then a slight uprise. So those like those, those miniature ones, there may just be like another layer of that on top of it, just due to the duration. She, she's uh, Dr. Balat smiling because she smells another research article. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I hope to find myself on some 400 meter tracks in the future too. So it'd be fun, fun to kind of replicate some of this stuff and see how it turns out. Uh, I, I definitely am interested in just adjusting the way I prepared for them as well with this too, with uh, maybe skewing. I'm, I'm definitely not void of short 30 second intervals in my training historically, but uh, I probably haven't leaned on them quite as heavily as you would advocate for. So I think that will be a fun, fun thing to play around with. Uh, but um, I don't want to sidetrack away from the current topic. If you guys want to add anything else to that. Um, but I do want to reflect on like what else to include in a, in, in a training program outside of these short intervals uh, in, in your, in your thoughts as well, if you want. Cause, cause one thing I'm thinking is uh, when, or where people who are listening to this are probably thinking, okay, that's great. Now uh, we see what you mean with the short intervals, a 30 by 30 setup. Uh, I want to implement that, but what else? Like, cause some people are thinking, so do I just go out and do that workout every day? Do I do that once a week, twice a week? Do I periodize it doing during certain phases of the training plan and focus on other things during other parts? How does that piece to the puzzle kind of fit into the grand training plan, so to speak for, let's say like a marathon for starts? We, we, you know, we have many, many kind of uh, short interval training, uh, many uh, between a hazy pace and a very hard pace. Uh, we have many, we have a great diversity. If you want, we can send you uh, some uh, 30, uh, uh, some, some 30 uh, training uh, log if you want to, to try some training session because uh, we have, indeed, we have 240 kind of interval training. And uh, so uh, we we use uh, free interval training per week, free, and uh, in, in uh, uh, be between we just ask people to to do uh, uh, what we want, even if we want to do some over sport, uh, as cycling for instance, it's very good to cycle, uh, and but the most important is uh, one day one training session. I recommend to, uh, to, to go in nature and uh, to run three uh, hours, uh, walking, accelerating, as, as you want, uh, with your feeling for at least two hours. So uh, I recommend three short interval training sessions per week uh, in between some uh, easy jog or swimming or cycling or playing tennis or, or playing uh, soccer and football as we want. But uh, at least one training uh, uh, per week, a uh, very long, very long uh, uh, training uh, in, in, uh, in, in nature, in forest, in, uh, in mountain, uh, with different uh, level and, and so on. Uh, and, and you don't have to think about anything. You just run uh, if you want to accelerate to, to go on the hill, go, and then you have to play, to play, as Africans do. So uh, free interval, short interval training, plus very long, very long, because, you know, there is a heat shock protein, uh, that's protein will uh, appear uh, with the elevation of temperature of body, and uh, this heat uh, shock protein uh, are protect the muscle fiber. So it makes you stronger. Uh, it makes it give you a, a kind of protection. That's why I recommend to, to, to run for three hours, for instance, three four hours. You 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 take something to hit, you yeah. can stop and, uh, and go. And and I would say the um the 
more to her point and what she's really getting at, it's uh, the variable pace training, you know, learning easy, medium, hard. It takes practice. I mean, you just can't, you just can't go, go out and do it. You know, Matt, Matt Fitzgerald, for example, of 80, 20 running, you know, he did a review for the book and such and such. And, you know, he went out and did some of the training and he, he admitted, you know, it was, it takes practice. You can't, it, it, there's just no way you can go out and say, yep, I just need to read easy, run easy. I need to run medium. I need to run hard. I mean, we're talking hours of practice to where you really can tap into your own inner sensations, your feelings, so to speak, you know, how Veronica keeps uh, referring to them to, to effectively run at a variable pace. It just, that's why running at a constant pace is just so much easier because you just get your body to run to a, you know, to a, to a pace, but through these accelerations, you, and that's why these weekend runs are so important because that's where you're like, you're testing your ability to run easy, medium, and hard. And, and you know, I'd say, you, you, you know, the ultra endurance guys probably tap into that way better than somebody say running a marathon, so to speak. But, you know, I just don't want to underemphasize the, how, you know, it takes practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think like the trail guys and gals are maybe just, they kind of get forced into it a bit where they have that undulation where, you know, it's just like, even if they run intuitively on that type of terrain, they're probably going to push a little harder on the uphills and then ease back a little bit on the downhills from just a mm -hmm. front intensity standpoint, uh, especially if the terrain becomes technical. So they may end up kind of like like accidentally or intuitively falling into that type of a programming from, from their environment of choice. Uh, it is interesting. I think also maybe with the ultra marathon crowd too, you just have more opportunities maybe to like kind of have a little bit of like uh, seeds of doubt creep in and peel back on the pace and then get confident again mm. and then speed up. So you might have a little bit of that happening from just the psychology of running all day long. Uh, it's it just in, in first thought, but yeah, you know, when, when you talk about when, when you move to programming workouts to easy, medium, hard in one way, I think that's like the, I, I like the way you described it doctors where it does take practice. Cause I think like when we look at perceived effort, rate of perceived effort and things like that, that's kind of like more or less the gold standard with running. Um, you know, we don't have power meters to the degree that they do for like cycling and things like that. So it's just a little harder to use, uh, you know, data points and heart rate can be a little more noisy at times, depending on the environment and the weather, cardiac drift, hydration levels and things like that. So when I'm coaching folks, I really do like it when I've gotten to a point where they do understand perceived effort, where they're like, okay, this is an easy recovery intensity. And I can tell by the way my body feels, you know, this is like a medium pace or a base level type of an intensity, because I can tell it by how my body feels. And this is a hard effort. I can tell how, I, by how I'm breathing, like my lack of ability to engage in conversation and things like that, um, as a great spot to get to, but it does take practice. You do oftentimes, I think you have to lean on some other things to kind of get yourself to that point. Mm, yeah. So that's what I would say. I would agree with that completely. So. One other follow-up I wanted to ask about in terms of just the trading training process. And I think what people are maybe thinking when they hear easy uh, people with experience, probably kind of an idea what that is medium. They probably gravitate towards like, you know, maybe goal marathon pace, depending on kind of how, how fast they're able to run a marathon and then hard. They're maybe thinking of like three kilometer to five kilometer type racing. So when I think of it like that, and feel free to correct me if I'm off on any of that. But when I think about what's maybe not included in there or a gray area zone, we'd be looking at maybe intensities that would be uh, kind of described as like a lactate threshold workout or a tempo workout. Do you think that like just by varying your pace intuitively in some of these longer sessions, you're ultimately going to be tapping into that intensity as well? Or is that something that you would just recommend to avoid anyway? I recommend to avoid anyway. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Some people are, are that, that dislike the tempo runs or the three by 12 minute intervals are probably rejoicing right now. So <laughs> no, because, 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 uh, listen to me, because, you know, I, I did my PhD on this, on the topics on the, the maximum lactate steady state. Uh, the most important is to have a stabilization of lactate. So you have a balance between apparition and dispiration, as said Dr. Edwards. So 
Yep, the uh, appearance and clearance, yep. So by going right up to your threshold, you're putting yourself in a position where you're, you're kind of risking accumulating without pulling back. Am I understanding that right? Yes. Okay. So you want to be going above and below often enough so you can kind of clear and produce clear and yeah. repro- Okay. Okay. And, that- and then, yeah. And then the, and then the higher levels of lactate is so misunderstood. I mean, we, we get this, you know, this uh, four millimolar, you know, lactate is the, you know, anaerobic threshold. And, and I mean, research after research after research shows you can, I mean, you could, that, that could be eight for you. It could be mm-hmm. 10 yes. for you. Right. You know, it's, it's not four. So LT1, you know, whatever you want to call it, just get out of, you know, don't pay attention to the numbers, pay attention to you. So that's what I, that's another big point in the book we make. And, you know, a lot of the research. uh, As say Dr. Edwards, you have uh, protein who who transport the lactate, the uh, MCT, MCT1, MCT4. And by training, uh, interval training, we we increase uh, the genesis of this kind of protein were, were in responsibility to, to for transporting the lactate from the fast uh, muscle uh, fiber till the heart and till, until they to the, the slow fiber type. So for increasing this, this type of protein, monocarboxylate transporter, you have to, uh, to do interval training not to stay at the same pace. Okay. So there's, there's not any, like, cause when I, when I first was reading about the short interval stuff or the 30 by thirties, I was thinking ahead of myself in the context of a periodized plan. And I was thinking, well, I wonder if these, 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 these kind of like traditional lactate threshold workouts, which for, I think a lot of people, I mean, I've seen some as low as five minutes, but more or less, they're going to be like, eight, sometimes up to 20 minutes in length. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe the, the additive there would be going really short, but breaking it up a little bit differently where you're doing like four minutes at that pace and then dropping low for like, I know most lactate threshold workouts have been prescribed as a two to one work to rest rate, but maybe you would even go like four to one or something like that, where you do four minutes at threshold and then drop down. But it sounds like you're saying like, that's, it doesn't kind of carry over from the VO2 max into the lactate side of things. It's got a whole, it's a whole nother conversation once we enter that type of uh, training intensity. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, in the book, we cover that, we cover a lot of that in uh, chapter five and, you know, it's the most complicated Mm -hmm. chapter of the book, you know, the whole lactate uh, theory and, and uh, things like that. And, and I would say, I, yeah, it, it, it's so hard to wrap your head around how lactate can be your premium fuel, uh, you know, and, and it's hard to wrap your head around the, the ATP that's actually produced from lactate. And one of the most uh, intriguing questions we, we, we've received, uh, Dr. Dr. Balad has answered, or, you know, it's like, how much ATP do you really get from utilizing lactate? Um, and that's, that's a hard question to answer and, and vision, you know, and kind of understand. So I don't, do you have any insight on that, Dr. Balat? Well, I, I would say that lactate is a kind of uh, energy reserve. And uh, when you go fast, you accumulate lactate, it's, it's kind of reserve and you can transform it in, in, uh, in glucose again. So uh, you have to consider lactate as a friend, not an enemy. And, uh, but to, exactly compute how much ATP uh, for one millimolar of lactate. Uh, we, we, we may say that for one millimolar of lactate accumulated, uh, it corresponds to energy of three milliliter per, of oxygen per kilo of body mass as energy, because you know that for one liter, for one milliliter of oxygen, uh, you don't spend because you, you, are, uh, you have lactate. It corresponds to, um, um, uh, uh, one milli, um, uh, three milliliter of oxygen uptake. So one millimole of lactate accumulated correspond to three milliliter of oxygen per kilo of body mass you, you, you can spare. So 
is a correspondence between oxygen deficit and um, uh, lactate accumulation. So the, the lactate is a kind of, of, uh, of energy and we can uh, compute uh, effectively the energy you have, uh, you have uh, spent uh, with, uh, you have spare with the lactate accumulation and at the condition that you can transform it uh, in, in glucose again, uh, thanks to oxygen uptake. So the most important again is to have a variation of speed. Otherwise, uh, lactate will be accumulated and you will be obliged to stop. So you, you will not able to use this lactate reserve because... Yeah, that's what we call a failed race. So to kind of maybe summarize that, like if you get yourself in that position where you're kind of floating around that area, you're accumulating that lactate. And then if it breaks you, then you basically lost it versus having the ability to recycle it more or less. Right. Exactly. That's a, okay. that's a point. It's really interesting. So I had uh, Dr. Mike Nelson on a while back and we were talking about some of this energy substrate type usage. And I mean, we were focusing a lot on just like, you know, fat oxidation rates and, uh, you know, glycolytic um, things and things like that. And like, you know, how you balance that out and how you kind of determine whether you're in a right physiological state from your nutritional and your training strategy to find yourself in a good position on race day. And, you know, he did mention something like that. He's like, you know, you can go down the rat that you can go down that rabbit hole as far as you want. But at the end of the day, you know, there's some stuff that we're still teasing out, which I guess we're kind of talking about a bit today, which is like, you know, the role of lactate. I mean, it hasn't been that long that we've even recognized that as a potential benefit versus, you know, it's, 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 it's fighting like probably a fairly steep history of being looked at negatively where mm. you, know, you go back, you don't go back too far and, uh, you know, a lot of the, the coaching language would be like the accumulation of lactic acid in your legs. You have to get that out of there. That's what's going to ruin your race. Or that's what we're trying to train you to be able to tolerate that kind of a mindset versus kind of what you're telling us today. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And we, and we did demystify the word lactic acid, you know, that, mm -hmm, yeah. that exists, that exists in only pretty much in cancer and dead people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's tightly controlled, right? Like it's, uh, oh, it's, you know, uh, it, you can't really, uh, like what, you know, an, a similar comparison would be when there was that whole craze around like, uh, what was it like P or alkaline water, right? Where yes. it, it, mm -hmm. like your body's not going to like dump, dump that high alkaline water in your system. Your body's just going to control for that. It's not necessarily going to let your, it's not going to let that fluctuate more than like a really tight within a real tight margin. Yeah. So. I mean, the water gets to the stomach acid anyway, and it's like spitting in a lake of acid, you know, yeah. they, they think <laughs> it has more to do with the hydrogen production anyways, or something, you know, something like that to what I've read, but it has little to do with alkalizing the, 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 the body, so to speak, you know, I mm -hmm. think, you know, you got to train your body to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's compelling. I, I'm, I'm excited to, uh, kind of share this information. I know some of our listeners are familiar to a degree from when Dr. Edwards came back on, but I mean, like, like both of you mentioned, I mean, it's a, it's a dense book and it's a bit of a paradigm shifter for a lot of people, I think. So, uh, having you come on, uh, Professor Balat is, I think just really going to be a good primer for folks who haven't read the book yet to kind of have an idea of what they're kind of diving into or have some scaffolding around some of the dense examples and, and material that you guys have available in, in that book. Thank you. Yeah. Just, yeah, just to re recap, you know, it's called science of the marathon and the art of variable pacing, you know, and it's a book we did, you know, that Dr. Balat uh, wrote called, uh, it was called uh, revolution marathon or the marathon <laughs> revolution. And uh, it was, you know, it all stemmed from that. And um, yeah, that's how, that's how that, that's how the science of the marathon was born. So. And am I correct that uh, your website uh, is uh, just blot.net? Is that still where they can find, find like a lot of where your happenings are? Uh, uh, com. Okay. My, my bad. Billatraining.com. Yep. Okay, yeah. cool. Because I just want to make sure I'm linking this stuff in the show notes for interested uh, listeners can kind of easily get right. over to that stuff. But um, I'll link both. Uh, if, if you guys, I, I think you probably sent me the link for the show notes last time, Dr. Edwards, but I'll be yeah. sure to follow up with you to make sure I have the best spot to send folks for that, uh, as well as anywhere else you guys would like to share about 
things that you have going on or any, any information available for folks if they want to dig in, if there's anything you want to share from social media, uh, websites and that sort of stuff, feel free to do so. And I can link those in the show as well. Great. Yeah. Thank you very much, Zach. Thank you very much, Zach. <laughs> well, thanks again for taking out some time. I know you're both very busy and uh, your time is valued and I'm really looking forward to releasing this episode to the listeners. And please, Zach, uh, you have to try the rabbit test. So I'm going to send you a code, uh, promo, promo code for, for, for you if you want to try it. Absolutely. I'm in a good spot to do it. I actually just started my next kind of training cycle the beginning of last week. So I'm in a good spot to find out where I'm at with some of these, uh, <laughs> some of these velocities at certain intensities. So I'll be sure to, to do the test and we'll do it a few times, I guess. I'm, I'm really curious to see uh, for one, where I stand with the first time doing it. And then two, how it progresses and three, how those short, if I, if I double down on the shorter intervals and, and maybe stay away from progressing into longer ones, if that, uh, what, what types of result that shows. So it'll be fun to kind of play around with that in the, in the coming weeks. We, we predict it'll show good results. All right. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's good news to me. <laughs> we, we, we drink the champagne, champagne. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please consider checking out my website at zachbitter.com or my social media channels at zachbitter on Instagram, at zbitter on Twitter, and at zach.bitter on Facebook. You can also support the show by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to send me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.